You know, I, I, you know, have you heard that perspective, right? Perspective is everything. Well, let me give you an example of that. Uh, you, you, you've probably heard the old saying that if you love someone, set them free, and if they come back, it was meant to be. Well, here's a different perspective. If you love someone, set them free, and if they come back, no one wanted them, right? I mean, that's a, that's a different perspective, isn't it? Perspective is everything. Here's what I hope. I hope that your perspective is beginning to change about the book of Revelation. We're just one chapter in, but I hope that your perspective is beginning to change. I talked to so many of you that have said, you know what, I've sort of avoided it somewhat. I know pastors avoid it because it's a little scary, to be quite honest. You've got beasts, you've got dragons, you've got battles, you've got locusts, you've got all these things that are like, what is all this about? And so we just sort of pull away. But here's what I hope. I hope after one chapter, your perspective is beginning to change, and rather than being fearful of it, that you are drawn to it and you're being hopeful because of it, all right? Now, we've done one chapter, and last year, we did a series called Seven, and it was in chapter two and three of Revelation. We looked at the seven letters written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So if you wanna catch up through two and three, you can go online and look at our sermon archive and look at the series seven. But because we've already done that, rather than uh, duplicating it, uh, you know, now we're going to skip to chapter four. And chapter four is amazing. We, we ended chapter one with looking at a vision uh, that, that, that God had given John of Jesus. Now, remember, there was two chapters in between, and he comes back after writing these letters to seven churches who were living in this chaotic, crazy, out-of-control world, and he gives another vision. He gives a vision of the throne in heaven. And as he gives this vision, he does so to give hope and to bring encouragement to the church because they're living in this crazy world. They're being persecuted heavily. They're being tortured. They're being ran out of town. They're being killed. And man, it's discouraging. The world they live in is very discouraging. They're like, man, I, I mean, what's going on? They could begin to think, if God is for us, why is this happening? So God gives them this vision to help them to understand. And us today, what's going on in the world is real, but it's not ultimate reality, okay? He gives them this vision of this throne to say the ultimate throne. Now listen, folks, we gotta get this today. The ultimate throne was not in Rome, and the ultimate throne is not in Washington, D.C. The ultimate throne is in heaven, and it's occupied by Jesus who is in control of everything, okay? He is in control, and because we know that, because he's showing this vision to this church, these churches that are living in this out-of-control world, now they can have hope, now they can be encouraged because what's happening here is not the end. God is on his throne, and he is in control. And so that should cause us to stand up, right, as a church and stand strong. And that's what we see as, as we're looking at this vision. Now remember, uh, uh, remember, this is very important that you get this. Travis read chapter four to you a moment ago and asked you to try to get this vision in your mind, this scene, imagine it. You know, as you're reading, you get the scene in your mind. And it's like, wow, I mean, this scene's crazy. I mean, it's just like amazing as you begin to think about this scene. Remember, Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. It's, it's like unlike any other literature really in the Bible except the book of Daniel. It's apocalyptic. And when the authors of apocalyptic literature are writing, uh, they're using symbols in order to communicate spiritual realities 
that are otherwise hidden from our, our my eyes, right? And so, so, so they're using these symbols, and they don't mean for us to take these things literally, right? They're using these symbols, and here's what John's doing. He's got this vision. He's using all these images and symbols to interpret Old Testament prophecy, right? Like in Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and even in the Psalms. He's using these symbols to interpret Old Testament prophecy and, and, and in doing so to help us know that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. And that's what this book is about, right? And so, so let's dive in and begin to look at chapter four, verse one. At four, verse one, Travis read it to you a moment ago. Let's break it down now. It says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which, had, uh, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, all right? Go back to chapter one, and you'll see that voice. It was the voice of Jesus. Said, come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. Now, if you read the book of Ezekiel or the book of Daniel, you'll begin to see that this sounds eerily familiar to the vision that God gave them of heaven. And because what he's doing is here, he's interpreting Old Testament prophecy. Now, John sees a door standing open, and a voice invites him to come up. And he says, come up here and let me show you some spiritual reality that will change your perspective on the things that your eyes see on earth. That's basically what he's doing. He says, what I'm about to show you, you're gonna look at earth and all the things that are going on in your world with different eyes, with a different perspective. It's sort of like watching a football game that you have recorded, but you already know who won the game, right? I mean, like I have in the past, and I don't like to do this, because it completely changes how you watch the game. But you've watched the game, the Titans or the Vols or whoever your favorite team is, you've recorded it, and you watch it, and you know who won, right? And, 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 and when I do that, it's like, man, it changes how I watch the game. It's like we're down in the fourth quarter, and our quarterback throws a pick six. Normally, man, I would be, my blood pressure would shoot up. I'm jumping up. I'm screaming. My grandkids come to the house and watch the Titans with me, my sons, and, and my grandkids say, is Chief okay? They call me Chief. Is Chief okay? I mean, because I'm getting, man, I'm, I'm upset. I'm screaming. I'm throwing the remote. I'm throwing things. And what are you doing, you know? I, I mean, I, I'm, but when I know the outcome, man, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm just relaxed. I'm chill, right? I'm even, to be quite honest with you, when they throw that pick six, and man, the other fans, they show the other fans, they're screaming. I'm like, <laughs> you lose, buddy. Enjoy it because I know you lose. Right? I mean, my perspective completely changes. Right? I mean, that's what's going on here. John has a vision that helps his perspective of everything that's going on on earth completely change. He's saying we might get pummeled right now. Things aren't looking good right now. Things are out of control. Things are chaotic. I don't even know what to do. How did we get here? This is the worst we've ever been. The sky is falling. All these things. He says, hold on. That's not ultimate reality. In the end, we win right? So stand up and stand strong. And so that's what, that's what uh, John's vision communicates to us. Now, now let's look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, at once I was in the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. The Spirit was revealing to him these things. I was in the Spirit, and behold, see, behold twice. In other words, behold, stop, look at what you see. Man, that's a great word for us, isn't it? Stop. Hold on just a second. 
I'm looking at, at all the political turmoil. I'm looking at all the, the racial turmoil. I'm looking at all the COVID turmoil. I'm looking at all the, the political mess around all of those things. And I'm like, oh, I can get so overwhelmed. Behold, stop. Stop and look at the reality, real reality. What's going on? Remember, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The very first thing he sees when he goes to heaven, when he sees this vision of heaven, is a throne. It's a throne. Now, now folks, we in America, we, we don't like thrones too much. I mean, we're a, a democracy, right? I mean, you've just seen that play out, and we're, we're a democracy, and we don't like thrones too much because typically when we think of thrones as rulers, typically the people that sit on thrones can be power-hungry, egotistical, maniacal uh, uh, dictators who look out for no one but themselves. They're about building their kingdom, and they use you to build their kingdom, and so we, we don't like thrones so much. We, we don't want to be ruled by a throne so much, right? But folks, here's what I want you to understand. What makes a throne good or bad, because thrones are not always bad, and the difference between good or bad is who's sitting on the throne, right? I mean, that's the difference is who is sitting on the throne, and what John sees here is God is sitting on the throne. And in this vision, uh, we, we begin to see why it's good that God is sitting on his throne. And so he begins to describe some characteristics. He begins to describe some things about God that should ease our, our fears, that should calm our nerves, no matter what's going on. And he, so, so he begins to, to talk about some things uh, that we see in God. First off, what we see is the sovereignty of God. Why is it good that God's on the throne? Because he's sovereign. No king that sits on any throne on earth, no president, no ruler, no leader of any nation is sovereign. In other words, they're not all powerful. They're not all in control, but our God is. That's what sovereignty means. Notice Jesus told John, come up here. And what he, did, what he, what he said was, or what he didn't say, he didn't say, come up here and I'll show you the things that might take place. He didn't say, I'll show you the things that could take place if people would behave and, and live godly lives. This could happen. No, he, he didn't say that. He said, come up here, and I'll show you the things that will take place. How can Jesus declare for certainty that these things I'm going to show you will happen? Because he's in charge of them. He holds it in his hand. He is in control of everything. All things are ordained by God for our good and his glory. Everything even when we can't understand it, even when it looks out of place, even when we look at it and say, ah, that is so uh, antichrist, that is so against God, that is so sinful, it's so immoral, this is happening, this is happening, and we can say, what is this all about? We know that God's in control of all things because he is sovereign. And the sovereignty of God, the fact that God's in control should give you great peace. It should give you great comfort and great encouragement and great hope. In the late 1600s, there was a Presbyterian named Alan Cameron, and he was arrested and he was awaiting execution because he resisted the Scottish king's rule over the church. And they tried to get him to wilt. They tried to intimidate him and get him to wilt, and he never would. The day before his execution, they made one last attempt. They killed his son, they cut his head off and his hands off, and they brought them to Cameron at his cell. And they said, do you recognize these? They were trying to intimidate him. Do you recognize whose these belong to, whose these are? And he said, I do. They're my sons, my dear sons. 
but he didn't wilt. Rather than wilt, he stood up and he stood strong. And here's what he said. He says, good, when he saw them, he said, they're my sons. And he said, good is the will of God who cannot wrong me nor mine because he has made goodness and mercy follow us all of our days. In that situation, looking at the severed head of his son and severed hands of his son, he didn't wilt. He stood strong. He stood strong and he stood up. Why? Because he believed in the sovereignty of God. God's in control. God is in control of all things. My son's life was not in the hands of the Scottish king. He didn't determine when my son died. God did. He created his first day and his last day. He's in control. And so I know where he is today, and I can stand strong no matter what's going on. This is why Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good? Listen, for those who are called according to his purpose. How could Paul declare and write in Scripture, and write in Scripture that is absolute truth recorded for all ages, good for all people, all times, all places? How could he declare that? All things. You know, when things are great, man, when we've got religious freedom, when we're able to worship, man, when the economy's awesome, I mean, man, when our family is healthy, I mean, when things are going great, when we get a new car, I mean, in all things, man, when the economy's in the tank, I mean, man, when the country's in turmoil, when there's someone in your family that's not healthy, when your kids are struggling, all things, all things. Why? How, how can he say that? Because God is in charge of all those things. We only see now, when Jesus was on the cross, when he was at the whipping post being torn apart by the cat of nine tails, it didn't look good. How can you say that was good? Oh, today we say that was glorious, don't we? Because all things are a part of God's plan, and they're God-ordained, and therefore they have purpose, and they're in their proper place. All things. You, you, you've seen the, the show, the movie, The Wizard of Oz. It's been around for years, right? It, I mean, it, the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy swept away from Kansas by a tornado, and, and uh, she desperately wants to get home, and she needs some help, and so she makes her way to the Emerald City with the Scarecrow and, and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, and they go to see the great and powerful Wizard of Oz to get help to get home, right? So they get there, and they go before the powerful Wizard of Oz only to realize the curtains pull back, and it's just a small man pushing buttons and pulling levers. He really can't help anybody. Listen, when we look at the vision that John gives us in Revelation that was given to him by God, he gives us that, and we know for certain that God's not pushing levers, pulling levers and pushing buttons, desperately trying to make things happen. He's not wringing his hands. He is in control. All things are in their place, and all things have purpose. And so no matter what's going on in our world today, folks, no matter what's going on politically, no matter what's going on with diseases and pandemics and, and all the racial turmoil, no matter what's going on within your family, no matter what's going on in your health and with your job, no matter what's going on, God is in control. And when you know that, then you can be easy and relax because you know who wins. You know who's in control, right? The pick six you know, at the end of the game, it's not the end of the game, right? 
We know and we can relax no matter what's going on in our world. We can relax. And so, so we see the sovereignty of God, but then he, he, he shows us the glory of God. Now notice, uh, glory means basically the weightiness, God, the weight of God. It's all that God is. That's what glory, you, say, well, you hear people say, the glory of God. Well, what does the glory of God mean? Very simply, I mean, if you just, just boil it down to the bones, the basics, it just means God is more valuable. He's more important than anything. He holds highest honor because he is everything. That's what it means. It's the totality of all that God is. And so, so we see here the glory of God, right? Now, I, I think, to be quite honest with you, I think one reason that Christians are so stressed when things go bad is because God has become so unimportant, especially, I think, in our country, to most people, to even Christians. God doesn't hold the place of importance in our lives that he should, right? I mean, and, and here's what happens. We, we begin to say, you know what, life is, 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 I know God created life and as a Christian, but we really, you know, think life's about us, our money's about us, not God. Our marriage is about me and, and, and my needs being fulfilled, and uh, not God. My kids are about me. My career's about me getting power, getting position. Everything becomes about us rather than about God. And here's what happens, folks. I guarantee you. Listen, when you begin to get stressed out, when you begin to worry about what's going on in the world, here's what you, you you'll, if you'll stop and behold, here's what you'll see. When, when your stress goes up, here's what happens. I guarantee you can look and God's importance has gone down in your life. When, God, when the importance of God goes down, your stress is going to go up. Your worry and your concern is going to go up. The opposite is also true. When the importance of God goes up in your life, when your marriage is about God and your marriage is hurting and struggling on the rocks, and you know God's got it. Hey, I'm not saying it doesn't cause some struggle within your soul, but I'm saying your stress level's a little different. When your money goes down, when, your, when the stock market hits the tank, when your job goes away, but God's importance is high in your life and his glory is high, he is ultimate value, he is your ultimate value, then all these things have their proper place. I'm not saying it doesn't create stress. I'm not saying that at all. We, we live in a real world. But I'm saying your hope and your encouragement is different. And so he gives these Christians that are struggling in these churches who are being murdered and killed hope because, listen, God's in control. Don't think that Nero is in control. Don't think that Domitian's in control. Don't think the emperor on Rome, the throne in Rome, who's trying to get you to worship him, don't think he's in control. I know he's threatening to kill you. Don't think he's in control. God's in control. And let me tell you how glorious he is. And then he begins to give us a picture of the glory of God. And, and, and what we'll see is, as he gives us his picture, let's look at verse three. It says, and he who sat there on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, notice, here's what you're gonna notice in this vision. John did not try to describe God. He didn't try to describe God because he couldn't describe God. No one has seen God. We can't see the glory of God. Moses asked, God, let me see your glory. Let me see all of who you are. And God said, you can't, it'll kill you. And he showed him the back, remember? He hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and he come by and he saw, Moses just saw a glimpse. No one has seen God. We can't describe God. He didn't describe God, he didn't try to. He just described the glory that's around God's throne as best he could. 
Imagine, remember, John is told to write what he sees. That's hard. That's hard. I mean, when you describe the Grand Canyon, what are you writing? It's like, I can't really describe it. Well, we're looking at the one who made the Grand Canyon. Imagine trying to describe that, right? And so as best he knows, he begins to describe the the glory of God. He says he has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Now, basically, these are precious stones. These are precious stones, and, and here's what happens. The stones in themselves, when you look at a beautiful, precious stone, I mean, man, you think it's brilliant. It's beautiful, but it's really not that stone. What, what, what makes the stone so brilliant and beautiful is that the precious stones reflect the light, and the more pure the stone is, the clearer the stone is, the more the light is reflected, and it's like brilliant, and it's beautiful, right? I mean, ladies, think about the most perfect, beautiful diamond you could ever imagine. If you're married, it's probably not on your finger, right? So, especially if you got married when I did, because you couldn't afford that, 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 that most beautiful, per- perfect ring. But imagine that diamond, how it just reflects that light. Well, here's what John, John's got this vision. He says, here's the only way I know to describe it. God's glory is so brilliant. It's like Jasper and Carnelian. It's just reflecting the indescribable glory of God. And it's indescribable, right? And so then he talks about a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald. And he's going back to Genesis 9. Remember what happened in Genesis 9? Man, God destroyed the world with a flood, but he saved one man who was righteous in his family. His name was Noah. And after the flood had subsided, and, and, and do you remember what God did? God promised that he would never again destroy the world, that he would have patience until all the full number of the redeemed were brought in, and he put a, a sign in the sky to remind us of his promise, his covenant, to, and, and that he would always be faithful. To that. And that sign was a rainbow. And here, John, he just describes this rainbow in heaven. And, and basically, he's saying that God and the, and the Jasper and the Carnelian, he is just amazing. He is just beautiful. It's brilliant. I, I, you can't imagine it. He, he is faithful. He is faithful. He will never break his promise to you. He will never break his covenant to you. Now, why was that vision important to that first century church? Why is it important to us today to think about the rainbow? Because God is faithful. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us. God is faithful to his promise. You can rest. You can relax. You can chill. You can sleep at night because your daddy holds it all, and he's in charge of everything. You can rest because he's faithful to keep his promise. And then we see the power of God, the power of God. Let's read verses four through seven. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder, which goes back to this rumblings of thunder. I'm, I'm not going to describe it in a moment, so let me, let me hit it for a moment. It goes, goes back to on the mountain when Moses was receiving the law and the, the, the smoke and the thunder and the lightning, and, and, and you're just seeing this magnificent vision, if you can even get it in your mind. And it says, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, the fullness, the seven, remember the seven. Seven is the, the, the symbol. It's apocalyptic literature. Seven's the symbol of perfection and wholeness. The, the Holy Spirit and this fullness was, was before the throne. And before the throne, there, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. 
What is that? We'll talk about it. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature has the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. Now, you're going, see, that's why I don't know about this book. I mean, I'm hoping it changed your perspective a little bit. And so, so what we see here before the throne, he says, let's talk about the, he's showing the power of God. There's a sea of glass. What is a sea of glass? Remember, it's apocalyptic literature. There's not a literal sea of glass. That's not what he's saying. He's trying to describe this in a way that is, First century readers would have understood it. And in the Old Testament, specifically in the Old Testament, the sea was a symbol of chaos and rebellion. As we'll see later in the book of Revelation, the first beast that's scary, the first beast is going to come out of where? The sea. It's a symbol of chaos, and it's a symbol of rebellion, right? And, 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 and man, that's what we see uh, on, on our planet right now. We just see all this chaos, rebellion. They saw all this chaos and rebellion, but around the throne was a sea of glass. And what's he saying uh, around the throne? Why is there this, this sea of glass? Because he's saying things may seem chaotic. I know that the emperor is trying to kill you. I know that you're being ran out of town. I know your jobs are being taken away. You're using, losing your union card because you, you won't bow down to the emperor. I know it's chaos there. Everywhere you look, it looks like, man, it's rebellion. It's complete rebellion against the will of God, against the word of God. We're living in a world that is far from God. Man, we can describe some of the same stuff today, and we can say, man, this world is completely out of control. And he says, it is. It's chaotic, and it's rebellion because it's rebellion against God. Since Adam and Eve bit the fruit in the Garden of Eden, we've been in rebellion against him, and every person born after Adam and Eve has been in rebellion against him, and it's created all this chaos and rebellion. But here's the power of God. He's in control, and in his new creation will be nothing but peace. The chaos is gone. That's what he sees. He sees no chaos. He sees no death. He sees no disease. He sees no divorce. He sees no rebellious kids. He sees no fighting. He sees no wars and rumors of wars. He sees none of that. He just sees an incredible peace that we all long for. No stress of our finances. No, no stress of our health. Nothing. Just peace. God has the power to make that happen. And so he's describing this because he's warning all the folks in the, those churches that were going through the very difficult times they were going to, through to remember God is sovereign. God is glorious and God is all-powerful. And he, is, he will bring a new creation and none of the junk that you deal with will be in that creation. You know, in, in Psalms 2, says the nations rage against God. He says in Psalms 2 that the kings and the rulers of the earth set themselves against God. That's what was happening, Nero. Then Domitian, and on and on and on down through the ages. Psalm 2, the kings and the rulers set themselves against God. But you know what Psalm 2 says God does? Oh, these kings and rulers are setting themselves against him. All the kings and all the rulers are setting themselves against God. And God's like, oh, what are we going to do? I mean, man, I, I don't know, man. I hope we can sustain this. No, in Psalms 2, it says the kings and the rulers set themselves against God. And you know what God does? He laughs. He laughs. Don't you love that image? He laughs. He laughs at the feeble attempts of the rebellious kings and rulers of the earth. He laughs at what they think they can accomplish. We fear, but our God laughs. 
He's that powerful. He's that glorious. He is that omnipotent. He is that sovereign that we can trust. Don't worry. Hang on, church. And then what we see finally here is, or at least what I'm going to finally talk about because there's so much here, right? We could, we could several sermons on this, on this uh, chapter. But today, the last thing I want to talk about is what you see is the worship of God. We've seen the sovereignty of God. We've seen the glory of God. We've seen the power of God. Now I want to look at the sovereignty, or, I'm sorry, the worship of God, which is why we titled this uh, Bow Down and Stand Up. Bow down and stand up because this, 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 this last passage here, when I read this, I said, man, I think this is key. Bow down and stand up, and I'm gonna explain in a moment. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and uh, all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So here's what you see. All of this vision of God, all of this vision of God, seeing his sovereignty, seeing his glory, seeing his power, what should that result in? Worship of God. It should result in the, the worship of God. It, it, you know why we're stressed? Because we don't bow down to God, because he's become unimportant. But listen, when we bow down, in other words, when we worship, it changes our perspective, and we can stand tall, and we can stand strong in this world when we worship. So if you want to stand strong, you've got to bow down. The reason many people aren't standing strong is because they don't bow down. They don't worship the God who is all-powerful. They don't worship the God who is glorious. They don't worship this amazing God who is omnipotent and sovereign. They know him, they claim to know him, but man, worship has become so unimportant because God has become so unimportant. That's not what we see in heaven. What do we see? John has this vision of this glorious God, this omnipotent God, of this absolute faithful God. And what he sees is, he sees this amazing display of worship. There are 24 thrones and on those thrones are 24 elders, right? And they're clothed in white with crowns on their head. Now, there's a lot of debate about what these 24 thrones and 24 elders are. And I could go over that, but for time's sake, I'm just gonna tell you what I think they are, all right? What I think these 24 thrones, 24 elders on these 24 thrones represent are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which would be the redeemed church of both testaments, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Why? Because I'm gonna let scripture interpret scripture. It's apocalyptic literature. He's giving us symbols here, and he's giving us 12 and 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, and in, in Revelation 21, uh, he's gonna see a vision, and in that vision in Revelation 21, the 12 uh, uh, tribes of Israel, are the names of the 12 tribes are inscribed on the gates of heaven, and the 12 apostles' names are written on the 12 foundations of heaven, okay? And so, so I think he's talking about the full number of the redeemed in heaven, right? And, and he says that they're wearing white robes. Now, wh why does he 
Why does he say that, that they're wearing white robes? Well, if we go back and look at chapter three, what we're going to see is, we're gonna see his church, uh, his, his letter to the church in Sardis. And his, his letter to the, to the church in Sardis, he says that they'll wear, well, those who haven't soiled their garments will wear white because they're worthy. And then the crown, if we go to chapter two, and we see his letter to the church in Smyrna. Good old Smyrna, our namesake. If we see his letter to the church in Smyrna, he says that, that, that the be, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so basically, the, the garments represent people that have stood faithful to the end and the crown represents the rewards of those who endure to the end. Now folks, listen, here's what we see. John sees a vision that should give you great hope. How, how should this give us great hope? Because you've got the tribes of Israel, you've got the apostles, basically the redeemed church in both testaments, all those who are redeemed. Listen, here's what it says to us. You've lost your granddaddy. You've lost your grandmother, some of you. Some of you lost your daddy. Some of you have lost your mama, your kids. Here's what you need to know. Here's what the vision says, and God is faithful, and he is true, and he will keep his promise. And this says that if those you lose your brother, your sister, if those you lose know Jesus, where are they today? They are in heaven, ruling and reigning with God. He will raise them up. It's hope, it's encouragement. They're not dead, they're more alive than evermore. I, if I know Jesus, they know Jesus. We'll be together forever, we'll rule together, we'll reign together. And he's writing this to a church. He's writing this to seven churches. Seven represents completeness and fullness, so not just to those seven churches, He's writing this to all churches uh, throughout all ages, throughout all history, and he's saying, you're going to undergo persecution. And you can begin to go, oh man, what happened in America to your religious freedom? You're gonna be persecuted, just like the churches throughout the ages, just like China, uh, churches today in China hiding, just like people in India that worshiping Jesus are being killed. And he says, I know it can intimidate you and cause you to wilt, but he's saying, listen, you know this vision. You can stand strong, you can stand tall in this, because you're gonna be raised up and you're gonna rule with me and you're gonna reign with me and you're gonna wear white and you're gonna have a crown on your head. In other words, now I don't, I don't necessarily know if we're gonna be walking around in heaven with white robes and crowns on our head. This is a vision, remember, it's apocalyptic. And what he's saying is you're going to be pure and you're going to be rewarded for what you do. That's the point. It's not like, okay, don't get a vision that you're gonna you know, be walking around with a, a, a clean white robe and a, and a crown, and man, you're gonna be walking around in heaven like that. That's not what this is. He's saying you're going to be pure and holy, and you're going to be rewarded greatly for your service to me. You're going to rule with me, and you're going to reign with me. That should give great hope, shouldn't it? I mean, that should give amazing hope, encouragement to our world. We bow down. We bow down to this, this king who is sovereign and which will allow us to stand tall. We bow down to stand up, folks. And then, what does he see? He saw the, four, the 24 thrones, the 24 uh, uh, elders on the thrones, and then he saw four living creatures. And man, I mean, they've got six wings and they've got eyes all over them. <laughs> I mean, it's like, whoa, I mean, here, here's some of that stuff about Revelation. You go, what is this all about? I mean, it's a little scary, it's a little weird. Well, we go back and, Isaiah and Isaiah 6 saw these same seraph creatures. Uh, we go back and Ezekiel saw these exact same creatures. And you know what they tell us, 
They tell us what these creatures are. Remember, uh, this is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. These creatures were seraphim. They were angels, okay? They were angels that 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 are continually praising this omnipotent, powerful, faithful, glorious God. Right? And, and notice how many of them there are. There are four living creatures. Now, why four? I mean, is there just four there? No, I don't think so. It's symbolic. It's apocalyptic. And the number four, just like the number seven, all these numbers and symbols of an apocalyptic literature, uh, the number four is a symbol for creation. It's a symbol for creation. There are four corners of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean the earth is flat, by the way, all right? It's the, it's the north, the east, the south, and the west. There's the four winds. The earth is divided into four regions. You got the, the earth, the seas, the rivers, and the heavens. So the number four represents all of creation. On top of, of, of the number four, you've got a description of one that looks like a lion, one that looks like an ox, one that looks like an eagle, and one that looks like got the, the face of a man. What's that all about? Well, the lion is the highest of all the animal uh, uh, world. The ox is the highest of all the domesticated animals. The eagle is the highest of all the birds. And you've got man who is the highest of all of God's creation. And so what you've got, basically, John is using symbolism to say, all creation is worshiping our God. All creation, Uh, he's saying all of creation is worshiping our God. At the same time uh, that all of creation is worshiping God, you have the elders that, man, they're not walking around with a crown going, hey, look at my crown. It's got a few more more jewels in it than yours does. It's a little taller than yours. It's a little shinier than yours. Look at my crown. That's not what they're doing. What are they doing? Man, they're taking their crown off, and they're throwing their crown at the feet why? Because he is what's glorious, not the crown. He is their reward, not all the stuff that we think of. You see, we can't think of, man, what if you got more rewards than me? Man, he is our reward. And they just fall down. They say nothing compares to him. That's his glory. That's his weightiness. He is omnipotent. He is in charge. He is in control. No matter what's going on, I worship him. I give everything to him, folks. And when I worship him, when I bow down to him, I can stand tall. Because when I worship him, when I give him glory, guess what? My stress goes down when the importance of God goes up. And if we're stressed, we might need to say, God, God, are you important? And and today, listen, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know this one we're talking about, if you don't know him, then I would ask you today, I would ask you, would you today surrender, bow down to him today, bow your heart, bow your knee to this one today so you will be there one day. So you will be there one day. If you would love to do that, if you would do that, would you please just text the number, text text, uh, the word Jesus to 615-551-9800 online. You can do that here. You can come and see us. If you wanna know more about how do I bow down to this Jesus so so that I can experience this sea of glass, this calmness that I long for but I can't find. And that's what's happening. That's what this vision is all about. This vision, he gives this vision of the glory of God to say he is worthy. He is worthy. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is faithful. He is true. He is in control. No matter what's going on, keep your eye on him. Bow down to him, and you can stand tall if you bow down to him. That's what he's saying. You've got all of creation. You've got the redeemed church. 
What you see in this vision is you've got the redeemed church with all of creation, along with a multitude of angels, engaging in the single most important activity of all time, the worship of God. That's what you were created to do. That's only when life is going to make sense, when you're doing what you were created to do. That's why the, 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 the 24 elders, when they threw their crown, it says, he's the one who created, and in, the, in him they have their being. He sustains, he didn't just create, it's all about him, folks. When we get that, all the things that cause stress in our life, they're still there. They're still there, but oh, let me tell you, you keep your eye on the one who is weighty and the one who is most important, and all those things become not just secondary, but man, they, they're way in the rearview mirror. They're, 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 they're back there. But he is what I've got my eye on. That's what this vision is all about. And notice, here's the one thing, and when we see this, here's what it should cause us to do. If that's what heaven and worship is like, folks, it, it, should, it should be reflected here. What do we pray? What did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see his kingdom. His kingdom is not white church his kingdom is people of all nations all races all colors all ethnicities that's what his kingdom is your kingdom come god your kingdom come your will be done it's your will that the church be multicultural multinational multi-ethnic god your kingdom come your will be done on earth when it comes to race as it is here right now god let your kingdom come god your kingdom come in the church god let your kingdom come here in our worship. What is his kingdom? Well, man, the 24 elders didn't get up and say, I'm tired. I got up late last night. I got to go worship, I guess. They didn't leave worship going, well, Travis, you, what in the world were you thinking today with picking that song? The band was just too loud. He, I mean, the band was loud. Travis has got holes on his bridges, for goodness sake. He wears a hoodie every Sunday. It wasn't about critiquing Travis. It wasn't, was the pastor funny or not? It was about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. The words about Jesus, the songs are about Jesus. It, it's not like, well, how was worship today? I just didn't feel blessed. Well, good, it's not for you to feel blessed. It's for you to bless God. You see, that's what it's about. Get your perspective right. Get your perspective right, and things will change in your life. A new perspective, bow down to stand strong. Church, right now, I want us to join our voices with the angels that we know right now, with the church that's redeemed right now, with all of creation. Let's stand up right now, and let's begin to worship Him like we're... God, I pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let our worship right now be done as it is in heaven.